Amen. Okay, so we're, um, we're back in Ezekiel. We were last here back in the middle of February, so we're going to have a little, a little refresh and a little recap uh, just to set the scene again. So you may remember back in the uh, middle of February, we finished as we broke for Lent in uh, chapter 24. And uh, you may remember that chapter 24 of Ezekiel, it sort of comes to a little bit of a climax because God has been speaking to his people and warning them for for generations, for hundreds of years, God has been speaking to his people and basically saying, look, you are heading the wrong way. Uh, you're ignoring me. You're worshipping idols. Uh, you're self-satisfied. You're exploiting and abusing each other. If you don't stop and if you don't turn back, judgment will fall. And because God is so loving, he is endlessly patient. But in the end, there does come a point where, you know, where the axe falls And in chapter 24 of Ezekiel, uh, time ran out. Time ran out and uh, the axe kind of fell on Jerusalem. And you'll remember that for the Israelites, even when they're in exile, they have this thing that Jerusalem will never fall. The temple in Jerusalem is the place where God is present. It will never fall. And so for Jerusalem to fall, it's, it's a disaster like... The crucifixion of Jesus, like Good Friday, was for the disciples of Jesus. For them, it, was the, you know, it wasn't going to happen. Jesus was the Messiah. He wasn't going to die. And so when Jesus dies, it's a disaster. And for the Israelites in the Old Testament, when Jerusalem falls, it's a disaster. And that's where we got to at the end of chapter 24. Uh, the day has come and Ezekiel is told that news will come that uh, Jerusalem is under siege. And then you would expect chapter 25 and onwards to immediately go into a description of what happens in Jerusalem. But it doesn't. Uh, Next Sunday, um, Joel will be preaching from chapter 33, which is where we do get to what happened in Jerusalem. But these intervening chapters 25 to to 32, suddenly there's, there's a kind of change of scene because judgment having fallen on God's people... Uh, Judgment now falls on the Gentile nations who rejoiced in the fall of Israel. So if you if you just kind of flip back and just look at the headings from chapter 25, there's a prophecy against Ammon, against Moab, against Edom, against the Philistines. And then chapter 26 um, into Tyre. Now, that's interesting because at the time, what what people thought was every people group had their own God. And every nation had their own God and every forest had its own God and every plain had its own God. And what you had to do was keep all the gods happy by offering them worship. And so one of the things that's kind of going on in the context is the Gentile nations are laughing at Israel and saying, well, your God isn't up to very much, is he? Because if your God was very powerful, he would have saved you and rescued you. And clearly he hasn't. So our gods are better than your God. And some of the Israelites, you may remember from when we first started this study, They've fallen into the trap of thinking, maybe our God isn't all we thought he was. Maybe he's not as strong as we thought he was. Maybe we backed the wrong horse. Well, the fact that judgment is now falling on these Gentile nations makes us realise that there is only one God. Yahweh is the sovereign God. And he doesn't just rule over the the Israelites, his own people. He rules over all nations. He's sovereign over all nations. And judgment having fallen on his own people, judgment now falls on the Gentiles. Interesting, humbling, that 
Judgment falls on God's people first before it falls on, on the Gentiles. Which is interesting because we tend to think, feel very smug, don't we? <laughs> we feel very smug, but we're all right, aren't we? Because we're, we're saved and it's all these horrible unsaved people. Who are... Judgment, you know, falls on God's people first. If you, it's interesting, if you read um, Revelation, the last book of the Bible, it's quite a similar pattern to Ezekiel because Ezekiel begins with um, Ezekiel being led into the presence of God, being given a revelation, warnings about judgment falling on God's own people, which then falls, and then there's judgment on the Gentile nations. Revelation's exactly the same. The Apostle John, in, in exile on the island of Patmos, is led into the presence of God. God speaks to him. Judgment is coming. And where does judgment fall first? Well, it's on the seven churches, in the, the seven letters, in, uh, uh, in the beginning of Revelation. Judgment falls on God's own people first, because we're the ones that should know. And then it falls. And again, in Revelation, judgment then falls on the Gentiles. So that's where we've, where we've got to. Let me just read a little bit from chapter 26 of this prophecy against Tyre. Uh, So in the 11th year, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, because Tyre has said of Jerusalem, aha, the gate to the nations is broken and its doors have swung open to me. Now that she lies in ruins, I will prosper. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against you, O Tyre, and I will bring many nations against you. Like the sea casting up its waves. They will destroy the walls of Tyre and pull down her towers. I will scrape away her rubble and make her a bare rock. Out in the sea she will become a place to spread fishing nets. For I have spoken, declares the sovereign Lord. She will become plunder for the nations. And her settlements on the mainland will be ravaged by the sword. And then pick up verse 12. Chapter 26, they will plunder your wealth and loot your merchandise. They will break down your walls and demolish your fine houses and throw your stones, timber and rubble into the sea. Uh, I will make you a bare rock and you will become a place to spread fishing nets. You will never be rebuilt for I, the Lord, have spoken. So it's a very severe um, uh, kind of prophecy and every detail of it comes true. So the test of prophecy is, does it come true? Every detail of this comes true. So Tyre of the time was a huge trading port. It was a very, very prosperous city. If you look back in 1 Kings chapter 5 and Solomon building the temple in Jerusalem, where does he get all his timber from? He gets it from Tyre. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 5, when Hiram king of Tyre heard that Solomon had been anointed king to succeed his father David, he sent envoys to Solomon. And they set up this trading arrangement. So um, Hiram kept Solomon supplied with all the cedar and pine logs he wanted. Uh, Solomon gave Hiram 20,000 cores of wheat as food for his household. So it's a huge trading nation. It's a huge port city, very, very prosperous, very, very wealthy, and has a very good trading relationship with Israel and is making a fortune. When you, look at, um, uh, when you look at Tyre now on a map, so Tyre is, uh, if, you, if you look at the border between Israel and Lebanon, uh, Tyre is about 25, 25 miles up the coast into Lebanon. When you look on a map of where Tyre is now, it looks like it, it's, a kind of, it, it's a bit of land that sticks out from the coast and it's joined to the mainland. Uh, when Ezekiel was speaking, it wasn't joined to the mainland. 
there was a, a, a city of Tyre on the mainland, and then there was an island of Tyre with another city of Tyre on it, and there was a half a mile of sea between the two. So there's an island with Tyre on, and then there's the mainland city with Tyre on. When you look now, there's that, the sea between the island and the mainland has been filled in. Why has it been filled in? Because of this prophecy, because of what they did. Verse 12, they will plunder your wealth and loot your merchandise. They will break down your walls, demolish your fine houses and throw your stones, timber and rubble into the sea. When Tyre was eventually destroyed, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, laid siege to the mainland city. It took him 13 years, but when he eventually broke down the walls of the city, he realised that most of the inhabitants had hopped over to the island. And the city was fairly deserted, so he needed to get over to the island. So basically, he bulldozed the mainland city into the sea and built a bridge to the island. Which is why, when you look on a map now, it's not an island, it's joined. Nebuchadnezzar did it. He bulldozed the city into the sea. All of this happened. When you look on a map of Tyre today, uh, the bit jutting out to sea is a bare island with fishermen drying their nets. Because that's what the Lord said would happen, and that's what happened And 4,000 years on, fishermen are still drying their nets on the island city of Tyre. It's never been rebuilt. They were hugely prosperous. And I mean, there is a a city now and it's kind of when you look on the map, you can kind of see it. Hugely prosperous city. But now the actual island city, it's a bare rock where fishermen dry their nets. So that's all kind of of background and, and context and where we've got to. So now let's get to chapter 28, which is the thing we're supposed to be focusing on. But it's good to kind of just kind of have that background of what this place Tyre is and, uh, and why this judgment is so severe. So let me read chapter 28. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, say to the ruler of Tyre, this is what the sovereign Lord says. In the pride of your heart, you say, I am a God. I sit on a throne of a God in the heart of the seas. Just picture him sat there on his little island city. But you are a man and not a God. Though you think you are as wise as a God. Are you wiser than Daniel? Is no secret hidden from you. By your wisdom and understanding you have gained wealth for yourself and amassed gold and silver in your treasuries. By your great skill in trading you have increased your wealth. And because of your wealth your heart has grown proud. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Because you think you are wise, as wise as a God, I am going to bring foreigners against you, the most ruthless of nations. They will draw their swords against your beauty and wisdom and pierce your shining splendour. They will bring you down to the pit and you will die a violent death in the heart of the seas. Will you then say, I am a God, in the presence of those who kill you? You will be but a man, not a God, In the hands of those who slay you, you will die the death of the uncircumcised at the hands of foreigners. I have spoken, declares the sovereign Lord. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the sovereign Lord says. You were a model of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you, ruby, topaz and emerald, chrysolite, onyx and jasper, sapphire, turquoise and beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. 
You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the mount of God and I expelled you, O guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendour. So I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. By your many sins and dishonest trade, you have desecrated your sanctuaries. So I made a fire come out from you and it consumed you. And I reduced you to ashes on the ground in the sight of all who were watching. All the nations who knew you are appalled at you. You have come to a horrible end and will be no more. In the pride of your heart, you say, I am a God. That's the problem for the king of Tyre. And it's the problem for all of us. It's the problem of being a human being is that that is our that has become our basic fallen state. That's our basic nature that we declare, uh, I am a God. I sit on the throne of a God in the heart of the seas. Our hearts have grown proud. Uh, when you think about our, uh, our own culture, our own society at the moment, the place where we are in Western Europe, in North America, uh, we've arrived at that point. Not so much that we declare, uh, I am a God or we are gods, but we've declared there is no God. That's the declaration that we've made. And it began with, bizarrely, what's known as the Age of the Enlightenment. Two or three hundred years. It's, it's one of these kind of the George Orwell 1984, uh, you know, remember the, you know, the Ministry, of, you know, Ministry of Peace is the Ministry for... It's one of these twisted things. The Age of Enlightenment, there's this moment where some human beings thought, actually, what we need in order to be fully free... In order to be free, in order to emerge into the light of humanity, what we need to do is get rid of the darkness of superstitious religion. And only when we do that will we truly be free. And that was what began with the Age of Enlightenment. It's let's throw off the shackles of this uh, uh, superstitious religion and then we can be free. We can be masters of our own destiny. Only then will we finally progress. And it's, it's just bizarre that Jesus who came as a light into the world is then rejected in order that there can be enlightenment. You know, the, 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 kind of the, the bizarre thing is we can only, without Jesus, we'd never have known to call it the age of enlightenment. Because where did the idea of light coming out of darkness come from? Well, it came from Jesus. But then our pride, hu- proud human hearts take that concept of light coming out of darkness, flip it on its head... And say, well, in order to emerge into the light, we need to get rid of the light. It's just so true. But that's kind of where we've, where we've wound up. And so in our, in our current culture, that's where we are. And the problem is, once you get rid of God, then you end up in a disaster. Because without God, there is no universal idea of common good. There's no universal idea of we should look after each other. There's no get rid of God and you don't end up with a world where everyone loves each other. And we all get on well. And everything goes swimmingly. Because when you get rid of God, you get rid of the source of that love. You get rid of any idea that the strong should look after the weak. And you just end up with people being exploited. You end up with the horrors of communist Russia. You end up with the horrors of Nazi Germany. You end up with the horrors that we see all around the world as today, where people are exploited. When you put, push God off the throne, or attempt to do that, uh, you put yourself in the throne. 
And that's what's happened with the ruler of Tyre. His heart has grown proud. He thinks he's a god. He thinks he's the master of his own destiny. And he's puffed up because he's so wealthy. He's become so successful. It's, you know, again, in, our, you know, in, in Western Europe, we have this, this arrogance that we've made ourselves wealthy and therefore we can do anything. Well, how have we made ourselves wealthy? We made ourselves wealthy by exploiting the poor. By exploiting other, we were just reflecting out in our in our intercessions just a few moments ago when we were thinking about friends in, in, in Haiti and in Sierra Leone and the way our you know the way our, our trading system works is the powerful enrich themselves off the backs of the poor and exploited. And it's, it was no different in the time of Tyre. That's how Tyre has become so wealthy, is by exploiting trading relationships and enriching themselves on the backs of the poor. And God says, this is not wise. God says, you will come to nothing. If you pursue this path, you will come to nothing. Is that surely not a warning for us in our own age that the answer to the problems that we face in our society, the answer to the problems of a cost of living crisis and conflict here and conflict there is not more of we can work this out on our own. It should lead us in humility Back to the source of wisdom, the source of wealth. Remember uh, back in uh, Deuteronomy when the people of God are being prepared for entry into the promised land. And God gives them a warning. Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 10, he says, When you have eaten and are satisfied, praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. Be careful that you do not forget the Lord your God, failing to observe his commands, his laws and his decrees that I am giving you this day. Otherwise, when you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Verse 17, you may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth and so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as it is today. There's nothing wrong with wealth. But we are stewards and not owners. God created us to develop the created world Uh, not to devour it. Uh, Verses um, 12 uh, to uh, to 19, this lament for the king of Tyre. Did you notice as we read through it, there are lots of echoes of um, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. The the lament is kind of based or or kind of inspired by the story of the fall of Adam and Eve because it kind of begins with, you were the model of perfection. You were in Eden, Uh, You're anointed as a guardian cherub. You are on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways. In In the lament, this picture is being painted of beginning from this place of perfection. But then what happens? Wickedness was found in you. That's what happens with with Adam and Eve is they're in this most beautiful place. They're living in this beautiful world that God has created. They're placed there to uh, to, to take care of it, to steward it, to develop it. But then 
wickedness comes. And what is the wickedness? Well, the wickedness of Adam and Eve is exactly the same as the king of Tyre. In the pride of your heart, you say, I am a god. That's what Adam and Eve do. They say, we can be better gods than God is. We can do better without him. It's the great lie. The great lie of Satan is we can do better without God. Well, we can't. And it leads to disaster. Wickedness was found in you. Uh, through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. They enriched themselves on the back of the poor. So in disgrace, I drove you from the Mount of God. Adam and Eve being thrown out of the Garden of Eden, ejected from the presence of God because of their rebellion. I threw you to the earth. I made a spectacle of you before kings. The worst thing that we can ever do is to declare uh, that we are gods or to declare that we don't need God. It leads always to disaster when we, we are uncoupled from the source of all of these things and fail to recognise that uh, we live in a world created by God. So how do we guard against pride? Pride is the big problem. Pride is the problem that has led Israel into disaster and pride is the problem that's led Tyre into disaster. How do we guard against pride? Because we're all prone to it. We all like to think, it's part of our human condition, we like to think we're doing stuff on our own. We like to pat on ourselves on the back and say, aren't we wonderful because we've achieved X, Y or Z. And the temptation, as, as the Israelites are warned in Deuteronomy, is when life is going well and when you're prosperous, you forget about God and you think you've done it all by yourself. So how do we guard against becoming proud? Four things. Number one. Remember that we are creatures. Remember that we are creatures. We are created. We were created by a God of infinite wisdom and power. And anything that we have derives from who he is. Any love that we have to share with one another derives from a God of love. Any wisdom that we may have derives from a God who is wisdom. We are creatures and we are stewards and the moment we forget that we begin to exploit each other and exploit God's world remember that you were created you are a creature number two remember that we are sinners we are sinners we are fallen we are deceived and self-deceiving Uh, Isaiah says that the human heart is the most deceitful thing. Who can cure it? Uh, the, The great mistake of the Enlightenment was to think that on our own, just using our own, our own minds, our own reason, our own rationality, we could make the world a better place. It never happens because our reasoning is flawed. Our hearts are selfish. We deceive ourselves. We are in darkness until God shines a light. We are in darkness until God shines a light into our hearts. And we need to come before God in humility and realise that we are sinners. We're creatures. We're sinners. Thirdly, we have to recognise that the only way out of the mess that we find ourselves in is through the cross. It's through what Jesus did on the cross. The world looks at the cross, as I read at the start of the service, those words of Paul in 1 Corinthians. The world looks at the cross and thinks it's foolishness. 
How can that be the answer to all our problems? A common criminal being crucified on a cross 2,000 years ago. How does that make sense? How does that solve a cost of living crisis? How does that bring peace to the world? But it's only through the cross because it's on the cross that the problem of sin is dealt with. It's on the cross that forgiveness becomes possible. It's on the cross that our reconciliation with God becomes possible. And it's only when we're connected into relationship with God that we have any chance of becoming wise and finding the answers to the problems that we face. We're creatures. We're sinners. The answer to our problems lies in the cross and Jesus' victory over sin and death. And fourthly... We bring nothing to the table of our own salvation. We come to the cross with empty hands. We don't deserve anything and we don't bring anything. It's not that we come to the cross and we say, well, look, Lord, I've, you know, I've done some really good things. I'm doing, I'm doing pretty well. I just need you to add in a little bit extra to kind of make up the deficit. No, it's we, we come with, with empty hands. We are, we are saved for eternity by grace alone. Because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Our hearts will always be inclined towards pride. It's part of our fallen human nature that the human heart wants to live independently of God. But when we live independently of God, it leads to disaster. And in the end, judgment will fall. As we've uh, been reminded this morning, judgment has fallen on God's people in Jerusalem. Judgment is now falling on the Gentile nations. And and that's the way that it will be. And one day we will all stand before our maker and our creator and stand under his judgment. And the only question on that day is whether we'll be coming with hands full of of our own achievements, thinking that we can impress God and realizing Suddenly in that moment that actually uh, we have nothing to bring. Or we come on that day with empty hands and just say, Jesus, thank you for the cross. Thank you for dying for me. So guard against pride. Uh, Put Jesus first. Uh, Come in humility. Recognise that we're, we're creatures. We're stewards. But we're invited through by Jesus into this most wonderful relationship with God the Father that gives us life and life in all its fullness. Let's pray together for a moment.